Let's uh, take our Bibles this morning, if we could, and open them to the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3 and verse 10. And on this uh, special holiday, Independence Day, tomorrow, Independence Day weekend, we're sort of uh, pausing from our normal teaching schedule in the book of Genesis. And we're talking about how God has blessed the United States of America. Most countries of the world, if you lifted the gates around those countries, most people would run out. Here in America, it's the exact opposite where it seems as if the entire world is beating down the door trying to get into the United States of America. And at some point, we have to, after acknowledging the fact that our country has been blessed, we have to start to ask, why has our country been blessed? And I think I have the answer. The answer is the Bible has penetrated the culture of the United States of America more than any other country on the face of the earth, particularly at our founding. And America was founded on seven basic principles coming directly from the Bible. Had these principles not been in existence in the foundation of our republic, the blessings that we have today simply would not exist. I think it was the late D. James Kennedy who wrote a book, which I'll recommend to you. It's very good. It's entitled, What If the Bible Had Never Been Written? And he talks about all of the things, blessings that would disappear from planet Earth if we didn't have the Bible. And one of the things that he mentions is the United States of America tracing the impact that the Bible has had on the United States of America. And what I've tried to do is take those principles and boil them down to seven basic core principles coming from the Bible. The first three we've actually covered before in Sunday school. So what you're hearing now is part two of part one that started in Sunday school. And the reason we started this in Sunday school is I said to the Lord, Lord, I can't get through all of this material. And he said to me, duh, everybody knows that but you. So I took the liberty of dividing this into two parts. But earlier today, we saw the things that make America unique. Number one, the sanctity of life principle. The idea that our rights are unalienable coming from God. That is something core to America that's unique to America. Number two, the recognition of human depravity principle. When you understand that the human race in its totality has been beset by sin, you start to understand that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, so we need to place handcuffs on the United States government. We're not a tyranny here. And we trace that this morning in Sunday school. Number three, there's the non-New World Order principle. It's the idea that America, when it was started, going back to the writings of John Winthrop, was designed to be a bulwark against the kingdom of the Antichrist. I showed you those quotes a little earlier. America isn't set up to be just like every other country. It's designed to be a city set upon a hill which would shed light to the very nations of the world as found in the writings of America's founding fathers. Let's move now into number four. I call this the economic justice principle. Lots and lots of things today are being said by people in the name of social justice. 
But what is justice by God's definition? You'll see this expressed in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 19. For after the fall of man, God said, By the sweat of your face, you will eat your, you will eat bread. So you'll notice that you, our bread, comes from the sweat of our face. That's the deal. God at the very beginning in the scripture following the fall of man set up an economic principle and that economic principle is if you want to survive economically in this fallen world then you have to labor, you have to sweat because you will gain your bread by the labor of your own hands, the sweat from your own face. Paul the Apostle in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 reiterated this. Too many in the Thessalonica church that simply didn't want to work. I mean, they were too busy waiting for the return of Christ. Why hold down a job? And Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 10, he says, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to what? Eat either. You like to eat? And I do. It should be obvious by looking at me. Then labor, then, then, then work, then provide for yourself. The, the divine principle, economic justice, God style is you eat your own bread by the sweat of your own face. This also is one of the divine institutions that God has set up. As we explained in Sunday school, the divine institutions are institutions that God himself has built into the fabric of fallen creation so that fallen creation can be sustained in spite of its fallenness. We have the institution of conscience, these all coming from early Genesis, the institution of marriage and family. Down at the bottom there, the institution of government, the institution of nationalism, and here is yet another divine institution, the institution of labor. And what I want you to understand is socialism, which is really Marxism with lipstick, socialism and Marxism are a rebellion against Genesis 3 verse 19. Because you're no longer working by the sweat of your own face to earn your bread. You're now eating because of the labor of somebody else. And uh, socialism or Marxism is the idea that you work and I eat. That's not what God said. God said at the very beginning of human history, you work, you eat. You want to eat, then work. You work, it's very clear as you read this, by your own hands, by the sweat of your own brow. This becomes the simplest reason as to why socialism and Marxism have never worked anywhere they've ever been tried. Have you noticed that? No matter, no matter where it's experimented with, and it's been experimented with in many, many parts of the world, as you know, it never is able to sustain itself. It, it goes belly up. Because eventually what happens is there's more takers in the system than there are workers or earners. And no matter where Marxism or socialism have been tried, they've always resulted in catastrophic failure. This is why the Marxist or the socialist hates the United States. Because the United States itself is an example of a vibrant economic system that has nothing to do with socialism or Marxism. As long as that system exists, it's a rebuke to the socialist or Marxist mindset which says economic prosperity can be brought in through Marxism or socialism. And I'm here to tell you that when America was started... Going back to the very beginning, we actually tried to be a Marxist economy, and it didn't work. 
The story is narrated for us in a book called The Mayflower, a story of courage, community, and war by Nathaniel Philbrick. And let me just read to you a paragraph from this book. It says, The fall of 1623 marked the end of Plymouth's debilitating food shortages. For the last two planting seasons, the pilgrims had grown crops communally. Marxism, in other words. The approach first used at Jamestown and other English settlements. But as the disastrous harvest of the previous fall had shown, something drastic needed to be done to increase the annual yield. In April, Bradford... Bradford is the leader in early America that changed the economics of America to what we know today. In April, Bradford had decided that each household should be assigned its own plot to cultivate with the understanding that each family kept whatever it grew. See, the way it was working before is, okay, you grow crops, you put it into the common pot, the common basket for the good of everybody. Marxism. And it was failing. The pilgrims were starving, in essence. And Bradford switched the policy. And he basically said, okay, we're going to change the rules here. The rules now are, whatever you produce, you keep. He switched early America from socialism slash Marxism into the free market, which fits very well with man's nature because people will naturally work harder if it benefits themselves. The paragraph goes on and it says, In April, Bradford decided that each household should be assigned its own plot to cultivate with the understanding that each family kept whatever it grew. The change in attitude was stunning. Families were now willing to work much harder than they had ever worked before. In previous years, the men had tended the fields while the women tended the children at home. And here is a direct quote from Bradford's diary, quote, The women now went willingly to work in the field, Bradford wrote. The quote continues, And took their little ones with them to set corn. The author concludes by saying the pilgrims had stumbled on the power of capitalism. Although the fortunes of the colony still teetered precariously in the years ahead, the inhabitants never starved again. Bradford, as you know, was a man steeped in the Bible. No doubt he had an understanding of the divine institution of labor. And the Holy Spirit, I believe, took Bradford and led him to the right economic system that would make America a success. You work, you eat. That's justice, God style. It is exactly the opposite of what the children today in the public schools are being taught as we're being pushed into more of a state-controlled, state-mandated, Marxist-Socialist utopia which is not much of a utopia, because if these utopias are working so well, why is everybody fleeing those so-called utopias or perfect societies to come here? As people flood across the borders, at some point you got to ask yourself, what are they running from? They're running from the utopias that they were promised, that were in actuality a rebellion against Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, that have never worked. They're running to America where something is different. Keep this story of Bradford in mind when your children and grandchildren come home from college all starry-eyed with language that they learn from their professor about the, you know, justice inherent in the socialist or Marxist system. That system was tried early on. And yet Bradford switched. 
I believe, because of the Holy Spirit's intervention. What has made America great? The principle of economic justice. There's a fifth thing that has made America great, and it is, I would call it, the heterosexual monogamy principle. Now, God himself, at the beginning of his book, the Bible, the book of Genesis, has a sexual standard. Don't get mad at me about this sexual standard. I didn't invent the rules. God did. Don't shoot the messenger. But God, at the very beginning, in Genesis 1, verse 27, says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Two genders, right? And then in Genesis 2, verse 24, it says, For this reason, a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What is the divine standard according to God? One man for one woman for one life. I'm fully aware that there are people within the sound of my voice that have violated the standard for whatever reason. The grace of God is always available, but that doesn't change the fact that there's a standard. Cultures and societies that respect the standard prosper. Cultures and societies that reject the standard find themselves on the ash heap of human history. Jesus himself in Matthew 19, verses 3 through 6, was asked about this standard. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him, asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Which was sort of a debate going on amongst the rabbis. Jesus doesn't take the bait. He doesn't get into a rabbinical discussion. He goes right back to the standard. And he says in Matthew 19, verse 4, and it says, And he answered them, Have you never read? And How did, how did you all miss Genesis 1 and Genesis 2? Have you never read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Hey, that's Genesis 1, 27 he's quoting there. And he said, verse 5, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Hey, that's Genesis 2, verse 24 that he's quoting there. So that they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no, no man set asunder. This again is another one of the divine institutions, this one being marriage and the family which is something that God himself set up and ordained even before man fell. And Jesus in the New Testament respected it. There is hard evidence, and I'll share it with you in just a moment, that civilizations that respect this prosper. Civilizations that invent their own sexuality do not prosper. I'm quoting here from Bill Federer, a historian in his American Minute. And he says, quote, a study was done in 1934 by an an Oxford anthropologist named J.D. Unwin called Sex and Culture. He studied 80 civilizations over 5,000 years, including Athens. He found that sexual promiscuity... That would be sexual promiscuity in a culture that's changed God's standard. He found that sexual promiscuity always precedes the destruction of a civilization. Close quote. Dr. John Eidsmo, in his book, God and Caesar, references the same study. And he says, quote, J.D. Unwin conducted an exhaustive study of 80 primitive cultures and 16 civilized societies to determine whether there was a relationship between sexual practices and the level of a civilization. He concluded that no society can display productive 
social energy unless sexual energy is restrained and that that greatest energy is displayed by those societies which require that sexual expression take place within monogamous marriage. In short, civilization cannot survive unless there is some restraint upon sexual expression. The institution of the family supplies that restraint by divine law. Now, when America was started, and one of the reasons it began to prosper, is not only because of the principle of economic justice, but it was overt, obvious respect for God's standard. You don't have to look far in early America to see God's standard being promoted. Here is a statement from Benjamin Franklin, who, by the way, is considered to be one of the least religious of America's founding fathers. And he is writing here a tract to Europeans. And he is saying to the Europeans, come on over to the United States. Leave Europe and come to the United States. And he begins to sell America on what people will discover when they come to these shores. He says in this tract, quote, hence, bad examples of youth are more rare in America. Boy, times have changed, haven't they? And then he says, atheism is unknown there. Contrary to what people are telling you, atheists did not found America. Benjamin Franklin said, come on over to America. Atheism is unknown there. And then he says something very interesting infidelity, rare and secret. In other words, when it goes on, nobody knows about it. In other words, America was not a culture at its inception that was taking a different standard and constantly promoting it. And he goes on and he says, so that great persons may live to a great age in that country without having their piety shocked by meeting with either atheist or infidel, close quote. Come on over, he says, to the United States of America. You won't find an atheist. You won't find an immoral person. If someone is immoral, it's very secret. It's certainly not something society is going to promote. And you won't even find wayward wayward youth. And you look at quotes like this and you see the language of a man and of a nation that respected what Jesus said in Matthew 19 verses 3 through 6 and what God established in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. In fact, it's interesting that when you go into the law books of the colonies, what you'll find on the books of the original colonies were anti-sodomy statutes or laws. Sodomy, of course, is homosexuality. If you want to commit sodomy in the United States of America, you could be criminally penalized. I'm not necessarily advocating that we return to that. Maybe we should, maybe we shouldn't. That's not my point. I'm trying to show you what America was started on what its original basis was. And in fact, all of, the, all of those laws called sodomy a crime against nature itself. America was not a perfect country when it started, but it certainly respected the divine sexual standard. And boy, how times have changed. Here's a newspaper article written by a law professor Margot Kaplan, arguing that pedophilia is a disorder but not a crime. And compare that to the language of Benjamin Franklin. You might know this name here, uh, Dana Nessel. She is currently the Attorney General of the State of Michigan. And here's what she said recently. Quote, drag queens make everything better. Drag queens are fun. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel says at a civil rights conference in Lansing, Michigan, while speaking out at what she describes as efforts to divide people. Quoting Nessel, a drag queen for every school. Close quote, she adds. 
That is a mindset that is a deliberate flaunting, a deliberate attack on a divine standard. And I'm here to tell you folks that it really doesn't matter who is elected to office if the following happens, if God's standard is over and over assaulted and attacked the way it is, America can't survive. She can't prosper. Because this is one of the ingredients that made America great. I mean, when you enjoy a wonderful meal and you want to know how it's cooked, you ask for the ingredients. And that's what I'm giving you here. I'm giving you a list of Bible-based ingredients that made this country what it is. The sanctity of life principle, the recognition of human depravity principle, the non-new world order principle, the economic justice principle, the heterosexual monogamy principle. Let me give you here number six. The sixth principle that made America great is the cooperation with Christianity principle. When America was established, our founding fathers were seeking not to be an opponent of Christianity, not to be an antithesis of Christianity, but to be its greatest advocate and its greatest promoter. Why is that? Because they gave us something called limited government. In fact, if you were to go home today, which you might consider doing since it's 4th of July weekend, and if you were to read the entire United States Constitution, including the first 10 amendments to the United States Constitution called the Bill of Rights, that amount of information that you would read would span 11 pages. That's it. And if you were to look at what the Congress and the federal government is supposed to do, you would only see 20 things listed that they're supposed to do. Now, obviously, that whole mindset has been turned topsy-turvy, where Obamacare was passed, and that document is 3,000 pages. And the federal government has gotten themselves into anything and everything to the point that I like to call it Fedzilla. It's so big. But that was not the original design of the United States. It's limited government. It's the opposite of Marxism or socialism, which is big government. And so our founding fathers said this, if this experiment in limited government is going to work and we're not going to micromanage people's lives from cradle to grave, people need to be able to control themselves. Because if they can't control themselves, they've got to be controlled by big government. But big government is not necessary if they could control themselves. And what then is the best philosophy known to man to help people control themselves? Answer, Christianity. And they wanted Christianity for that reason spread everywhere. You don't have to look far in the writings of America's founding fathers to see this mindset. Notice Thomas Jefferson. He says, quote, My views on religion, in other words, are the result of a life of inquiry and reflection and very different from the anti-Christian system imputed to me to those who know nothing of my opinions. To the corruptions of Christianity I am indeed imposed, but not to the genuine precepts of Jesus himself. I am a Christian in the only sense in which, in which he wished anyone to be, sincerely attached to his doctrines in preference to all others. His system of morals, if filled up in the style and spirit of rich fragments he left us, would be the most perfect and sublime that has ever been taught by man. His moral doctrines were more pure and perfect than those of the most correct or, or perfect than those of the most correct of the philosophers. Gathering all into one family under the bonds of love, charity, peace, common wants, and common aims. 
developments of this head will evidence themselves in the peculiar superiority of the system of Jesus over all others. The precepts of philosophy and the Hebrew code laid hold of action, laid hold not of actions only. And here's why Thomas Jefferson was so impressed with Jesus Christ after his lifelong inquiry into the religions of the world. He, that's Jesus, pushed his scrutinies into the heart of man. He erected his tribunal in the region of his thoughts and purified the waters at the fountainhead. Thomas Jefferson said, there there is nobody like Jesus of Nazareth in terms of a religious philosopher because he said things like this, if you're angry with your brother, you're a murderer. Matthew 5, 21 and 22. If you're unjustifiably lusting sexually after someone, then you've already committed adultery. Now, if that's the standard, then who needs big, big government? People are able to micromanage and control themselves by following the precepts of Jesus Christ who took his precepts and scrutinies and pushed them into the hearts of people. And if this experiment in self-government is going to work, because that's what we've handed you, then we've got to spread Christianity everywhere. Uh, Just one little exception. We don't want to spread denominationalism. America is a Presbyterian country, a Episcopalian country, a Methodist country, because that's what we just escaped from. The Church of England, we don't like denominationalism, but we love Christianity. We love to spread the trans-denominational aspects of Christianity that all the denominations agree on. And as Christianity is spread, people will have the ability to control themselves. And if they can control themselves, according to the Ten Commandments of God, a big overarching government that micromanages people from cradle to grave could work. See, if you don't have Christianity, America's experiment in self-government collapses. Notice uh, the words here of Robert Charles Winthrop, one of the early leaders in the House of Representatives, speaking to the Bible Society in 1849. Winthrop says, quote, All societies of men must be governed in some way or other. The less they have of stringent state government, the more they must have of individual self-government. The less they rely on public law or physical force, the more they must rely on private moral restraint. Men, in a word, must necessarily be controlled either by a power within them or by a power without them either by the word of God or the strong arm of man, either by the Bible or the bayonet. It may do for other countries and governments to talk about the state supporting religion. Here under our free institutions, it is religion that must support the state. In other words, when Christianity fades from public life, People won't be able to control themselves anymore and the government has to get bigger and bigger and bigger and grow outside of its constitutional boundaries to control people. But as long as we keep not denominationalism but Christianity front and center, this problem will be resolved and our experiment in individual liberty and self-government will work. This is why the Founding Fathers wanted the Bible taught in the public schools. You heard me correctly. This idea that we're going to throw the Bible out of the public schools is an idea that would be completely foreign to the way America's Founding Fathers thought. 
Here is a statement from the first public school in America called the Old Satan Deluder Law, 1642. It says, it being the one chief project of that old deluder Satan to keep men from a knowledge of the scripture as in former times, it is therefore ordered that after the Lord hath increased the settlement, they shall appoint one within their own town to teach all such children to read. They shall set up a grammar school to instruct the youth. We need grammar schools. The youth need to know how to read. Not so they can pick the best stocks and retire early, but so they can read the Bible. They can read the Bible, then the scrutinies of Jesus Christ will go into their hearts They'll be able to manage themselves according to the Ten Commandments of God and big government won't be necessary. This is why our founders were taught to read through the New England Primer. 1737, how were they taught the letter A? With this sentence, in Adam's fall we send all. How were they taught the letter C? Christ crucified for sinners died. How were they taught the letter D? The deluge drowned the earth around. How were they taught the letter J? Job feels the rod, yet blesses God. How were they taught the letter N? Noah did view the world old and new. How were they taught the letter Z? Zacchaeus, he did climb in the tree for our Lord to see. And they started Bible colleges. Here's a statement from one of the Bible colleges that they started. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly uh, earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life, John 17, verse 3, and to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. And seeing the Lord only giveth wisdom, let everyone seriously set himself in prayer and in secret to seek it of him, Proverbs 2 and 3. Everyone shall exercise himself in reading the scriptures twice a day (laughs) that he shall be ready to give such an account of his proficiency therein. What a wonderful Bible college. Started in 1636, called Harvard University. In fact, you might be surprised to learn this, but the atheists in America did not found a single school until the Massachusetts Institute of Technology was founded in 1861, 72 years after the American Revolution. The idea of of an atheistic school was unknown to America's founding fathers. And actually, our whole legal system was set up to follow the Bible. Here is a quote from Sir William Blackstone. Now, most lawyers today know absolutely nothing of Blackstone. And yet, Blackstone's commentaries were the key commentaries that you read in the days of early America, if you wanted to become a lawyer. What were Blackstone's commentaries based on? He explains it. Thus, when the supreme being formed the universe and created matter out of nothing, he imposed certain principles upon that matter from which it could never depart and without which it would cease to be. If we farther advance from mere inactive matter to vegetable and animal life, we shall find them still governed by laws, more numerous indeed, but equally fixed and invariable. Man, considered as a creature, must necessarily be subject to the laws of his creator. He is entirely a dependent being. Watch this. No human laws should be suffered to contradict the laws of nature and the law of revelation. Close quote. What Blackstone is saying is God has spoken in two sources. Number one, the Bible. Number two, in creation. Now go to the Bible and go to creation and find the fixed laws that the Creator has established and come up with legislation that harmonizes with what God says. No human law should be suffered to contradict the laws of nature and the law 
of Revelation. This is why sodomy in early America was a crime. Because sodomy itself went against Romans 1, and sodomy itself went against the principles of general revelation because everybody knows that male and female have children. Two males don't have children. God spoke in general revelation. He spoke in creation. And so the laws came on the books in early America to harmonize with the will of the creator as found in general revelation and special revelation. This is not a mindset that's hostile to Christianity. This is a mindset that wants to cooperate with Christianity. In fact, the United States Supreme Court in 1892, citing 87 historical precedents, ruled in a unanimous decision that America is a Christian nation. This uh, particular case dealt with a pastor. He was hired to come across the pond from Europe to a church in New York, and they wouldn't let him in because of immigration laws. This was back in the day, I guess, where they cared about immigration laws. And this case goes all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says you can't have a law that interrupts what a pastor is supposed to do because this country is a Christian nation. I mean, if such a law exists, it would go against everything that our country is based on. Justice David Josiah Brewer authored the majority opinion, and he said, America is a Christian nation. This is historically true from the discovery of this continent to the present hour. There is a single voice making this affirmation. These are not the sayings and declarations of private persons. They are organic utterances. They speak the voice of the entire people. These and many other matters which might be noticed add a volume to the unofficial declarations to the mass of organic utterances that this is a Christian nation. What kind of historical precedence did the court cite in 1892? They started with Christopher Columbus. And there's no doubt if you watch TV... Listen to academics. You've heard everything bad there is to say about Christopher Columbus. And very few people actually read what Christopher Columbus said. He wrote a book, actually. It's called his Book of Prophecies. And he explains why he made the journey from Europe to this continent. And he says this, Our Lord opened to my understanding. I could sense his hand upon me. So it became clear to me that the voyage was feasible. All those who heard of my enterprise rejected it with laughter and scoffing at me. Who doubts that this illumination was from the Holy Spirit? I attest that he, with marvelous rays of light, consoled me with the holy and sacred scriptures. They inflamed me with a sense of great urgency. No one should be afraid to take on any enterprise in the name of the Savior if it is right and if its purpose is purely for his service. And I say that the sign that convinces me that our Lord is hastening the end of the world is the preaching of the gospel in so many distant lands. Close quote. I'm not here to defend everything that Christopher Columbus ever said or did because there's skeletons in every closet. Yours truly included. And if I looked hard enough into your life, I could find skeletons in your closet. Can I get an amen on that? I'm here to say, though, that the man, when he came here, had a primary objective, which was spirit-impelled. This this is not a man who is rejecting and is hostile to Christianity. This is a man who is cooperating with Christianity. In fact, in 1620, the first legal document showed up in the United States. It's called the Mayflower Compact. I mean, what did the pilgrims do when they got off the boat? 
they established a governing structure called the Mayflower Compact. It was written in 1620, and this is what it says. Having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith and the honor of our king, a voyage to plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia. This is not a group of people that are hostile to Christianity. They are cooperating with Christianity. In fact, on the Liberty Bell itself, you'll find a scripture. It's in Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 10. It says, proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. Here's a statement from the Maryland Constitution, 1776. It says, in Maryland, by the Constitution of 1776, it was provided that, quote, the legislature may in their direction lay a general and equal tax, and you're reading this correctly, for the support of the Christian religion, close quote. Hey, Maryland, state government, go ahead and raise taxes as long as the money is going to go to the church to support the gospel. This is the beginning of America. They didn't want to hide Christianity. They wanted it spread. They understood that it was the best religion and philosophy to help people govern themselves. And right after our founding fathers gave us the Bill of Rights, on the same day, they hired chaplains for the Congress. This is a statement from a case called Lynch versus Donnelly. Chief Justice Warren Burger speaking, quote, a significant example of the contemporaneous understanding of that clause is found in the events of the first week of the first session of the first Congress in 1789. In the very week that Congress approved the Establishment Clause, which, by the way, is what the left uses to say our founding fathers wanted to separate Christianity from public life, Berger says, in the very week that Congress approved the Establishment Clause as part of the Bill of Rights for submission to the states, it enacted legislation providing for paid chaplains for the House and the Senate. It is clear that neither the 17 draftsmen of the Constitution, who were members of the first Congress, nor the Congress of 1789 saw any establishment problem in the employment of congressional chaplains to offer daily prayers in Congress, a practice that has continued for nearly two centuries. It would be difficult to identify a more striking example of the accommodation of religious beliefs intended by the framers. The folks that gave us the First Amendment were not antagonistic towards Christianity. They were supporting it. Here's a Frenchman named Alexis de Tocqueville. He came to the United States of America in the 1820s. He was trying to figure out what makes America tick. What gives this group of people so much life and vibrance? And he wrote about it upon his return to France in a book called Democracy in America, Two Essays. Here's what de Tocqueville observed. Quote, There is no country in the whole world in which the Christian religion retains a greater influence over the souls of men than in America. There can be no greater proof of its utility and of its conformity to human nature than that its influence is most powerfully felt over the most enlightened and free nation on earth, close quote. He goes on and he says there's something different about America. Public life cooperates with Christianity. That's not how it is in France. The two are going the opposite direction. But America is special. America is exceptional. America is unique. Because it's marching in lockstep, not necessarily with denominationalism, but Christendom. 
Christianity itself. And boy, how the mighty have fallen. In 1963, the United States Supreme Court sadly ruled, but if portions of the New Testament are read without explanation, they could be. And in his specific experience with children, Dr. Grazel observed, had been psychologically harmful to the child and caused a divisive force within the social media of the school. Bible out, it causes psychological damage. That's not what America's founding fathers believed. You may have followed this case here of Coach Kennedy in the state of Colorado who at the end of every football game would go to the 50-yard line and kneel down just like he's kneeling here and give God glory for the opportunity to participate as a coach in high school football. Whether they won or lost, he would do that. And some of the students said, hey, we'd like to do that with you. He didn't coerce the students into doing it. He says, join me if you want to. And the state of Colorado, the school district of Colorado, fires him, takes away his job because he's mixing Christianity with the life of the school. I'm very happy to report within the last couple of weeks we got a good result on this one. The United States Supreme Court said side with Coach Kennedy, Colorado School District, give him his job back. And it is somewhat encouraging to note that our Supreme Court may, at this very last hour, be trying to get back to what our Constitution actually says. Let me give you one more principle that made America great, and with this we're finished. I call it the pro-Israel principle. God will evaluate nations based on their treatment of the Lone Star State. And no, I'm not talking about Texas. I'm talking about the Star of David, the nation of Israel, the Lone Star State. Because God in Genesis 12, verse 3, made the only foreign policy statement I can find in the whole Bible. And he said this as he was creating the nation of Israel through the patriarch Abraham. He said, I will bless those who bless you, the Jewish people, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. God, first of all, said, I'm going to bless the whole world through the nation of Israel. And boy, that that has happened, hasn't it? The scripture, the Savior, and the coming kingdom are all related to God's working through the Jewish people. The patriarchs, the law, the prophets, the Messiah, the apostles, the biblical writers, the early church, the early Christian martyrs, Paul the apostle himself, and the future kingdom would all be an impossibility had God not made a sovereign decision to work in and through the nation of Israel to bless the world. But then God went on and he says, I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. As a student of history, as a student of the Bible, I can tell you that that statement means what it says and says what it means. Major world powers began to mark their demise the moment they turned on the Jewish people. Babylon... Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, all began to decline almost to the moment that they became anti-Israeli in their foreign policy. But then God says something else in Genesis 12, verse 3. He doesn't just say, the one who curses you, I will curse. He also says, I will bless those who bless you. If you want to be blessed nationally, then be good to the Jewish people. Be good to the nation of Israel. You say, well, what does this have to do with the founding of America? Everything. 
George Washington did something August 18th, 1790, as our federal head. We know biblically that God works through federal heads, first Adam, last Adam. I believe what George Washington did here, August 18th, 1790, put America into the stream of divine blessing and not cursing. There is something in Newport, Rhode Island. You can actually go and visit it today. I've been there myself. They have a whole museum set up commemorating this. It's called the Toro Synagogue. The Toro Synagogue is the first synagogue that was ever established in the United States of America. And this particular synagogue invited George Washington to visit. And George Washington did just that. He went and visited that synagogue. And on the same day he visited the synagogue, he wrote a very famous letter. The letter to the Hebrew congregation of Newport, Rhode Island, August 18th, 1790. So famous is this letter that it's actually been cited in various Supreme Court cases, but most people sadly miss the crux of the letter. If you understand what he says, you can start to understand why America has been so blessed. Washington wrote this little group and he said, quote, I rejoice in the opportunity of assuring you that I shall always retain a grateful remembrance of the cordial welcome I experienced in my visit to Newport. The government of the United States, and he's entitled to say that because he's the acting federal head, the government of the United States, the father of our country, George Washington, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution, no assistance. And most people stop quoting the letter there. But if you miss what follows, you miss why God has blessed the United States. He says, may the children of the stock of Abraham, that would be the Jewish people, who dwell in this land, that would be America, Continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants. Then he quotes the Bible. Quotes here the book of Micah. While everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. Close quote. What he just did there is he said to the Jewish people, look, I realize that over the last 2,000 years, you have been persecuted since Rome kicked you out of your land. Everywhere you've gone in the world, you've been persecuted. And that's a pretty good summation of Jewish history in the diaspora, the worldwide dispersion of the Jewish people. That's the norm. The Jews go into a country and they're persecuted. They go into another country, they're persecuted ultimately culminating in what Adolf Hitler did with the Holocaust in the World War II era. But George Washington, in this letter, after visiting this congregation, when he wrote to them this letter on the same day, said, it's going to be different here in the United States. You're going to be able to worship the way you want, even quotes so-called their Bible, Hebrew Bible, you're going to be able to sit under your own vine and fig tree and no one is going to make you afraid. George Washington handed to the Jewish people a gift or a present that they have never had. You're going to be free of persecution Here in the United States, and what does your Bible say? Genesis 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you. I don't know what your interpretation of American history is, but here's mine for what it's worth. The moment George Washington did that is the moment God reached down from heaven 
And he touched the United States of America in a special way. And he blessed it from sea to shining sea. And in all of the conversation about the greatness of America and what has made America great and let's make America great again, this is almost always omitted. And yet it's a key ingredient to the recipe that has made our culture what it is. It was Harry Truman who was of the first, if not the first, to recognize the modern state of Israel when it came into existence in 1948. It was Richard Nixon in 1973 who received a call from Golda Meir in the middle, in the middle of the night, really, in what's called the uh, Yom Kippur War, requesting help militarily when it looked like Israel's days were numbered, Richard Nixon granted her request, sent military help. In fact, when Richard Nixon picked up the phone in the middle of the night and heard Golda Meir's voice, he could hear the voice of his mother in the background by way of remembrance who, as a devout Puritan, raised Richard Nixon with a knowledge of the Bible. He recalls the time that his mother read to him the book of Esther and how his mother, and you know what the story of the book of Esther is. It's about the rescue of the Jewish people. And how his mother stopped in the middle of the reading and said to young Richard Nixon, If you ever get a chance to help the Jewish people, do it. He picks up the phone, hears Golda Meir's voice, and says to himself, I finally figured out why God has allowed me to become president of the United States. He helped the Jewish people. The, The United States of America, because of this pattern, has been blessed and blessed and blessed, and blessed. It was Donald Trump, as you know, that moved our embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, recognizing the historic capital of Israel as Jerusalem, going back to the time of David. It was Donald Trump who recognized Israel's Annexation of the Golan Heights, which is a mountainous buffer zone separating Israel from one of her enemies, Syria. And you see all of these things and you say, well, of course, that's why God blessed America, because America is pro-Israel. I'm very sad to report that the tide is changing. Uh, This is an article by... Adam Berkowitz, Israel 365 News. He's basing his report on an article that showed up oh, a few weeks ago in the Free Beacon talking about how the Biden administration is now putting the infrastructure in place, which will lead to moving our embassy out of Jerusalem and back to Tel Aviv. Most people look at these kinds of things and think nothing significant of it. I'm here to tell you it's very significant because it's actually one of the formula ingredients in the formula for America's greatness. So on Independence Day weekend, as we think about the United States, why has God blessed this country? The sanctity of life principle, the recognition of human depravity principle, the non-New World Order principle, the principle of economic justice, the principle of heterosexual monogamy, the principle that our forebears were cooperating, not opposing Christianity, and finally the pro-Israel principle. I'll close with this in John 8, verse 36. If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Everywhere the teachings of Jesus go, it results in freedom.
if it goes into a government, freedom is the result. If it goes into a family, freedom is the result. When it comes into a human heart, freedom is the result. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Liberty. And we like to close all of our main teaching services with an invitation to accept the Lord's gospel, which is the idea that we celebrated at the Lord's table earlier that Jesus, through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, spilled his blood so that we could have freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from the greatest bondage that ravages the human race, the bondage of sin. The wages of sin is what? Death. It's like walking around and there's chained to you a, a giant ball that weighs a ton and you can't move. That's what humanity is like without Jesus. They're in a state of oppression. And Jesus did everything necessary to cut that chain. But you have to do something too. You have to receive what he has done for you as a gift. And if you won't receive it on his terms, you can't have the liberty that he offers. How do you receive a gift from God? Romans 4, verses 4 and 5 makes it very clear that you believe, which is another way of saying to trust or rely upon what Jesus did. The Spirit convicts a person, the human heart, of their need to believe, but he won't believe for you. He will give you the enablement to believe, but he won't believe for you. You have to believe on your own. And so our exhortation to everyone in the building, listening online, listening via archive after the fact, is to accept the greatest invitation to liberty a person can ever have, which is freedom from the consequences and the penalty of sin by trusting exclusively in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I hope people, even as I am speaking, will do that. It's not something you have to raise a hand to do, walk an aisle to do, join a church to do, give money to do. It's a matter of privacy between you and the Lord where the Lord says, do you want the freedom that I offer? Then trust in the work of the Savior. If it's something that you need more explanation on, I'm available after the service to talk. Shall we pray? Father, we're grateful for this nation and how it came into existence and how your hand was everywhere when this nation was formed. Help this uh, particular holiday not to be just another gathering where we're socializing and we don't even understand what the holiday is about. Help us to treat Independence Day with the sanctity and the respect that it deserves because of the work of your spirit in the forming of a very special republic. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We lift up these things in Jesus' name and God's people said.